In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Welcome, everyone, to episode 29 of the Culture of Peace podcast. My name is Luke Tatum, and this is the show where I interview people who are advancing the message of liberty and changing the culture for the better. Man, it feels good to do that intro again. Uh, We've been out of commission here for quite a while. I had a surgery back on tax day, so this interview today and actually the next episode Both of them were recorded before tax day, before April 15th. So um, as I'm recording this introduction, it's still in the first part of May. I'll have the editing completed as quickly as possible now that I'm back on my feet. But I just want to thank all of you for your patience as I've been recovering. And I didn't realize how long that was going to take. I was really expecting about a week delay. And uh, here we are now, well over three weeks. So... You know, I appreciate your patience with that, and as I say, it just feels great to be back in the saddle and riding along towards liberty. How's that for a metaphor? Okay, so today, as always, I just want to thank you for taking your time to listen to this show. I know that there's more podcasts like every single day, and especially libertarian podcasts, they always seem to pop up out of nowhere. So it really does mean a lot that you're choosing to spend your time with me and the interviews that I'm choosing to do. It's uh, it's really encouraging, and it also shows that you're taking responsibility for moving the culture back on track, You know, getting things back to where they should be, uh, or at least to where they should be in the first place. Maybe it's never been there to begin with. I know we have this idyllic view of the past sometimes, so... Uh, let's just plow on ahead. And to help me do that, if you would, just take a moment of your time, share the show, leave a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, however you listen to the show, whatever you like to do there. Uh, That does make a really a huge difference because it helps other people see that this is a show that people support. So please stop on by. The show notes today is going to be luketatum.com slash 29. And before we jump in, I also want to do a quick shout out for a project that I've been working on all year. That is freedomsong365.com. So we actually select a libertarian-themed song every single day. We've been doing it since the beginning of the year, and no signs of stopping. We um, just pick a song that's got some nugget of liberty. We expound on it, the we being myself. Nick Picone from Sounds Like Liberty, and Sherry Voluntary, who has several programs. Um, Of the three of us, we all 
do a write-up about that song with our own personal comments, and we have little factoids about the music. It's really, really cool. Freedom Song 365 is where you can find that. So freedomsong365.com. And uh, we've actually already written, as of like the middle of April, we've written more words than the novel Fahrenheit 451. I know that's kind of a short novel, but it's only, you know, that was the middle of April. We've got plenty of year left. So uh, definitely check that out. Now, I've been rambling for a while, so let's go ahead and jump into the show today. I'm talking to Patrick McFarlane. Wanted to have him on for a while. Patrick is a personal injury and civil rights plaintiff's attorney. He is admitted to practice in both Wisconsin state court and federal court. He is the host of the Liberty Weekly podcast at libertyweekly.net, where he's advocating um, libertarian legal theory and philosophy. He's also a regular contributor at the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. If you don't know Libertarian Institute, that's also got the great Scott Horton, and uh, as well as Kyle Anzalone has his show Foreign Policy Focus on there. So really, really cool stuff. But uh, today we're talking to Patrick. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Luke. Really glad to be here. Awesome. Well, I um, as we were just talking before we started recording, I've been trying to get you on the show for a very, very long time. I don't know exactly how long it's been, but uh, I'm really happy that we finally made this happen. And thank you for taking time out of your busy life and schedule to to do this. As I just introduced you, you know, you're in the world of law now, and so I'm sure that's a hectic thing. I know you have a family, and so, you know... I really, I appreciate that struggle. I appreciate you coming on the show. I want to start with some just basics. I like to always just give people a chance to talk about how they found libertarianism, how they, you know, was it Ron Paul? Was it stumbling across Murray Rothbard? Like what what brought you to this nexus, so to speak? Yeah, I think that everyone kind of has a story. I think people come from the left or the right in some sense, or I like to say of the left or of the right. Uh, Some people kind of get rid of mentioning the left-right paradigm at all. Um, But I am of the right. So I grew up north central Wisconsin. I'm a hunter, conservative family values. Uh, I'm a Lutheran. So I grew up in a Republican household. Uh, maybe not super political, but I was always a founding fathers type. Uh, I really appreciated the the mythology surrounding um, the emergence of the United States and that kind of stuff, which is problematic in some ways. Um, but I I was always I like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. So I came from a from that kind of perspective, and I was. I don't know, apolitical through high school, but I remember liking Obama because he was young and popular at the time, right? But um, I found essays that I wrote in high school, and I was spewing libertarian rhetoric. So I think I was always libertarian uh, in terms of wages and business ethics and, and that kind of thing. So in college, I found libertarianism i had a friend who suggested ron paul to me uh, and this was maybe freshman or sophomore year in undergrad which was around 2011 2012 
Okay. And so I came in, I became part of Young Americans for Liberty at the University of Minnesota. And I was involved with that in the crater of the 2012 campaign. So while all of that was going on, the best days maybe of being a libertarian, I missed all of it and came in at the crater. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of did the same thing. We have sort of a similar history, it sounds like. I voted for Obama in 2008, and uh, it was interesting because I came from a kind of conservative area, and at one point in my architecture class in high school, there was a discussion, just it was kind of a downtime day. We were talking about politics, and it was overwhelmingly, um, you know, not in Obama's favor, at least in the classroom, but we kind of were going around the table talking about things in architecture, right? And so I got asked who I was supporting, who I liked, because I guess people thought of me as sort of as an intelligent, nerdy kid. And I said I was supporting Obama. The teacher says, why? And I said, well, he has such a great stance on education. It sounds like he really supports promoting that. And the look she gave me is burned into my memory because it was like, oh, you poor soul. You actually believe politicians when they say they support education and they're trying to take care of people. Um, So that was a funny experience, but cool. So you, um, you came in in 2011 roughly, and Ron Paul obviously had a big effect. Same thing for me. I started in the same year with libertarianism, so that's super cool. Now... How did you get from there to law? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, there's there's a little more to the story too, but it's intertwined with me going to law school. So um, my mother is a legal professional, and I, I would say that my role models obviously have a big effect on what direction my life has gone in. And my mom is a legal professional. Um, my grandfather, her father... Uh, was not a legal professional, but he was <laughs> he was a John Bircher, and he was really big into paleo libertarianism. Um, as I came to find out when I got interested in these topics, so I've been chasing his shadow. And he, my grandfather, was a genius man, and uh, not without his own flaws, but that has a lot had has had a lot of effect on my intellectual journey. But so I. In undergrad, I majored in creative writing <laughs> with hey, a minor cool. in yeah. German. Yeah. So it's, it's an, when I declared English, I promised myself that I would go to a professional school and it was law um, because I was getting interested in these topics. And the first host of my show, the first co host, Jerry, was my college roommate my senior year. And I was a libertarian at that point and had been sparring on campus and stuff like that. But my roommate, Jerry, really put my feet to the coals and made me apply libertarianism universally and the non-aggression principle universally. Uh, He introduced me to 2013 uh, Stefan Molyneux, 2014 Steph Molyneux, who was, uh, you know, still kind of in our sphere a bit more. and. That had a really big effect on me. So I did not really, I think at that time, as I was getting into law school, the summer of 20, I think it was summer of 2015. Yeah. I was watching a lot of Steph Molyneux. I was discovering Murray Rothbard. 
uh, reading Anatomy of the State, which was like a religious experience in some way because it it really shocked me. Um, and then I brought these ideas into law school and I became very evangelical in these new ideas and I wanted to share it and, you know, the story we all kind of have. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's that awkward phase where all you want to do is talk about libertarianism to everybody all the time and maybe you lose some friends over it or you get kind of shunned by family or both. There's... Um, some awkwardness that can definitely happen there while you're, I don't know, settling down a little bit and turning from just being sort of an evangelical to just incorporating that into a broader landscape, like finding how to apply it, I guess is what I'm getting at. So what what's that like then? How have you been able to apply that in the legal world? I mean, what's it like? although I'm sure this is what you get asked more than probably anything else. What's it like interacting with other people in the corrupt legal world and, you know, being a libertarian, like holding other people's feet to the coals, so to speak? And, you know, give me some examples. Tell me some stories about that. Yeah, well, precisely. And um, that that's a, a big reason why I started the podcast, because... When I was in my evangelical phase, uh, as I like to call it, um, I really was turning a lot of people off in my personal life and challenging people, making people uncomfortable, uh, a, lot of, a lot with my family, too, and my interpersonal relationships. Um, so I didn't like that. I didn't want to be that person. So I said, you know what, I'll take all of this and put it into a vehicle, which is the Liberty Weekly podcast. And that, so that's how that all came about. It was therapy for me to feel like I'm making a difference, but not driving everyone around me nuts. <laughs> so at some point, I took a big step back and separated my professional life and my personal life and my libertarian life into different pots, if you will. Um, and so I could... And, and I think the way that I affected Luke in my, per, in my professional life is that I, I don't go about trying to actively convince people, but I will play the devil's advocate and heckler and ask people uncomfortable questions in a way. So what I, I don't confront the problem directly in my professional life, but I take little things that I know people will agree with me on and try and shift their perspective on it. Okay, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. Do you have an example of anything, like maybe a success story where you've challenged someone? Hmm. I, I'm a little bit more pessimistic of maybe a success story, but I was the guy in law school who, when we would be discussing policy issues, actually, no, I do have a good success story, but it, it revolves more around law school. Um, okay. So I... I was always the guy trying to to bring everyone to the realization that the law is force or violence, if you if you will, um, that every piece of legislating that we do has the impl implication of force so that we have to make sure that whatever law we have, it is morally sound in that it is a righteous use of force, which would be the non-aggression principle and property rights. Well, my I guess maybe my best success story is that um, I took a seminar class my 3L year, my last year of law school, 
And I wrote a big paper about how we can solve, quote unquote, solve the problem of domestic violence if instead of having the state enforce restraining orders, we instead handed it over to uh, private security firms, a la Detroit Threat Management Center. And I know that Detroit Threat Management Center, um, it's not, you know, they're not ideologically driven by maybe our pursuits, um, but I illustrated the case law and how um, the government is not bound legally to enforce restraining orders. You can't sue them if they fail to enforce a restraining order um, and you die or you have children murdered. And this is uh, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez is a um, Supreme Court case in which um, a woman in, in Colorado had a restraining order and the um, against her estranged husband and the estranged husband showed up and stole her kids from the front lawn. And while the husband stole the children, she contacted the Castle Rock Police Department eight times throughout the evening and it, it, through an eight hour period of time, eight hours plus, they didn't do anything about it. And it turns out that at the at the end of the story, her estranged husband ended up showing up at the police station with the two girls dead in the front seat of his truck and he committed suicide via cop. So wow. Gonzalez, yeah, yeah, this has really happened. And uh, Gonzalez sued, I think it was a 1983, um, it's a civil rights claim. So she sued for civil damages in the non-enforcement of the restraining order. And in her dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stated Well, the Supreme Court ruled that, no, you can't get civil damages through the 14th Amendment in 1983. Um, But in her dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she wanted civil damages um, for the non-enforcement. So she stated in her dissent, surely if Ms. Gonzalez had contracted with a private security firm and the private security firm failed to enforce the restraining order, she could sue for damages on this. But just because the state is involved... Um, we can't uphold that, at least through the 14th Amendment. Hmm, now, okay. that, le- that leads the question that if the if the state itself, the state of Colorado, had allowed through legislation for civil damages for the non-enforcement of restraining order, um, that would have been upheld, but they did not. Um, so that was the ruling that came down. So I used this, and I used liberal sensibilities, for lack of a better term, to illustrate to my class in a presentation the realities of, um, you know, that the government is not there to protect you, that we could have private competing security firms that actually have civil liability for these things to solve the problem of domestic violence. And it was very well received. Good. That's encouraging. Yeah. yeah. And my professor was re- pretty excited by, you know, my topic. And so that paper that I wrote for that class is available as an ebook to my uh, my email subscribers at libertyweekly.net forward slash email. Okay, awesome. I'll be sure to drop a link on there on today's show notes page, which, of course, again, is uh, luketatum.com slash 29. And I want to get your opinion on something I've done a previous episode on. So... Jury nullification, which, if you don't know, it's basically just using jury to, and I'm sure you know, but for the listeners, if you haven't listened to that episode, you never heard the term, jury nullification 
is just when a jury tries the law, not only the specific instant of the crime. So say it's a marijuana crime, they can vote not guilty even if the person has possessed marijuana and they think that that's the case. They can just basically judge the law and say, I, we don't want to enforce this. We don't think this is just. So that episode that I did was with Bob Smiley back on episode three. So that's LukeTatum.com slash three. And it's a fun episode. I recommend everyone check it out. Um, but do you think that's the best path forward as far as like legal solutions? Are we Should we rely on judges? Should we rely on juries? Should it be the whole thing? Like what's the path forward to get more liberty in the U.S. legal system? Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. Um, I so I, I did an episode as well on this. This is libertyweekly.net forward slash 56. And in it, I delved through Lysander Spooner's work on jury nullification. Uh, there's a lot of components to this. Uh, if you're not familiar with Lysander Spooner, he was a jurist. Uh, I believe it admitted practicing in Connecticut, but he is a very colorful figure. Uh, he wrote the Constitution of No Authority, um, as well as a large number of other legal works. And he was, in some ways, conspiratorially at the center of, uh, I think, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. So there's there's a conspiracy theory in there, but he was... Uh, an ardent abolitionist. He was a jurist, and his first act as a lawyer was to sue for his admission to the Connecticut Bar, or the Massachusetts Bar, I believe. But wow, I digress, because I also had a biography on him, and I forget which number episode that was. But So the idea of a jury is, um, it, it's kind of in some ways, a common law concept. And when I use the term common law, I'm not just referring to precedent and precedential decisions over a period of time, but I'm also um, referring to this idea of the law of the land, which is the customs and how cu certain cultures deal with problems through time immemorial. It is the natural process of dispute resolution that bubbles up from custom. That's what I'm referring to when I use the term common law. So in a lot of ways, and the process of using juries to judge someone by their peers is to try and take a sample size, a random sampling of the culture in which you live and submit you to that process. Now, Lysander Spooner, <coughs> excuse me, Lysander Spooner would say that jury nullification is a great idea because it is in a lot of ways, where the rubber meets the road between the state and the individual. If the state is going to exercise any power, de facto, they have to go through the jury, theoretically. And if we take the custom, it is taking a sample size of your peers, using them as a sieve through which the power of the state um, would go through before it reaches the individual. He describes it as a shield between the state and the individual. Um, while I do agree that if the state is going to be involved, we have to have a jury, I believe. We have to have this due process, having a jury of your peers. There are some problems with that, though. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems is, is that now the state has a monopoly on schooling. 
So when the state brings children up from younger and younger ages now, from maybe the age of three or four to the age of 18, and affects their thought process, their ideas about society, their ideas about the state and what the proper role of government is and due process, um, you're really getting a warped view of um, what juries should be. And I, I don't think it's very reliable. And yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, the jury can be a sword as much as it can be a shield. So, for instance, when you are trying to secure conviction for an agent of the state for doing something horrible, like police abuse cases, um, you, in, in a lot of ways, functionally, too, you a lot of jurists very much frown on jury nullification. And a lot, if you asked a lot of judges, they would roll their eyes. In Wisconsin, as an attorney, um, as a defense attorney, you are not allowed to argue for jury nullification. Right. Now, whatever happens in, in the chambers uh, during jury deliberations, if they take it upon themselves to do so, that's fine. But one crucial missing piece here is that in a criminal trial, at least in Wisconsin, um, you have to have a unanimous verdict. So let's say you're on a jury of 12 people. To convict someone, all 12 jurors have to agree to produce a guilty verdict. To acquit someone, all 12 jurors have to agree to a non-guilty verdict. So let's say that you are the sole holdout on a 12-person jury because you want to assert your jury nullification rights. Well, that's a mistrial, and there's going to be another trial after that. So right, right. It, it doesn't always you know, work in that sense. So um, if you'll allow me to pontificate a little more about um, the role of a jury, too, um, the role of a jury is, is twofold. Um, you mentioned, uh, rightly so, that the role of a jury is to find the facts, right? Um, right. They are the fact finder. Um, in a criminal trial, they're also, um, well, right, you know, we would argue rightfully that the jury has the, uh, the right to judge of the laws as well. But um, in a practical matter, as an attorney, I don't have too much faith in juries because um, juries are kind of a blunt instrument. Juries are laymen. They, they really don't, they're not familiar with these legal questions. Um, it is the job of the attorneys to instruct the jury. Uh, well, sorry, no, the, the judge will give the jury instructions. So, but the jury instructions are argued about and set before the trial by the two attorneys. So the attorneys have to uh, give the jury instructions. And in closing argument, you can also try to instruct the jury about how to look at the jury instructions. But the judge will give the jury instructions to the jury. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, you never know what juries are going to do. And I don't think that maybe juries are the best way to find the fact. Layman juries maybe not are the best way to find the fact and put your faith on in a, in a civil suit. Uh, maybe not even in a criminal suit either. But if the state is involved, yes, you have to have a jury of your peers. Um, so they will, the jury doesn't know how to think about evidence all the time. And the judge can tell them 
well, you have to give this certain weight to certain pieces of evidence or um, use your common sense to do that. Well, not all juries are common sense. Uh, a lot of the rules of evidence have to deal with what evidence we're going to let the jury see because a lot of evidence is unduly prejudicial and not probative. So probative means that a piece of evidence makes an event more or less likely. Um, and evidence is inadmissible when the probative value is, is overweighed by the risk of undue prejudice. Um, oh. So the, the example that I would give is that let's say you're in Massachusetts and this is a murder one case. Um, your defendant has a stockpile of weapons in his basement and the person who was killed was shot with, I don't know, a 45, let's say. Okay. Well, the prosecution is going to try and admit evidence of the stockpile of weapons that your defendant has in his basement. As a defense attorney, I would argue that, that the, um, the risk of undue prejudice outweighs the probative value of admitting evidence of his stockpile of weapons, right? Yes, you can make you can make the argument that the fact that your defendant has a stockpile of weapons, yeah, it does make it more likely that he would shoot someone as opposed to someone who doesn't have a stockpile of weapons. But when you have a jury in the state of Massachusetts, if they hear evidence of someone who has a stockpile of weapons, bam, they're going to assume that because he's a gun nut, he shot this person. Um, so that's one instance in which I don't have too much faith in a jury um, to be able to make those distinctions in their head and think logically. Um, but it is also, to be fair, the job of the judge and the rules of evidence to prevent evidence like that from getting in in the first place. So Interesting. Okay, yeah. I can see how there's some virtue there. I mean, you don't want a jury to be leading with their emotional brain and, you know, kind of leave logic to the side or let logic come in later uh, after they've already more or less made their decision. Because I think it's a true statement that we, as human beings, look at things emotionally first. And certainly, even with training, that's still a difficult, uh, excuse me, a difficult impulse to control. So... That's fascinating. Okay, I'm learning all kinds of stuff on here. You're giving me vocab to study. This is awesome. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, if um, so that's why I would maybe advocate in a free market situation, that's a huge uh, asterisk there. In a free market situation, I would maybe advocate a class of professional free agent jurors who, based on who the litigants are, they can hire what jurors have a reputation for being fair and just and logical. Um, but like I said, when the state is involved, you need a jury of your peers. Right, yeah. My wife and I have actually talked about this before, the idea of uh, professional jurors, because I see that as sort of a training path to becoming a judge. Like you would gather a reputation as being fair and not favoring, say, companies over individuals or vice versa. And then as you have that reputation, you could go to either a uh, training program to become a, a judge or, you know, I have no idea how it would actually work in a totally free environment, but that would be a good way to get your feet wet, so to speak. 
right? And I think you would have to have a lot more practical experience, though, to dealing with legal issues uh, itself, themselves. So, um, yeah, it's certainly an interesting concept. I mean, in, in terms of what the best way to go forward is with liberty, I think that this just kind of begs the issue of, well, we need to change the culture to be more liberty friendly. Because if people are going to be serving on juries, and it, if it's going to truly be a sample of your peers and of the common law in a certain way of the custom, um, of the culture of the area that you live in, it's supposed to be a trial by society. So um, you got to change society. It's not a very um, satisfying answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's fair enough. So I that sort of leads us right into my uh, big final question. We may spend a little bit of extra time on this one, if you don't mind, but I'm trying out something new. I want to get a little bit more uh, formalized structure to the show. And so I want to ask this question to every guest going forward. What is your brief assessment of the state of the culture, as you were just talking about? Uh, so the culture in the United States, what's it like right now, in your view? And what's your prescription for improving it and moving things in a more libertarian direction? Yeah, well, I, I've i said on shows before that I'm relatively pessimistic about the state of affairs. Um, I've had people bring it up to me that, well, if I'm pessimistic, then why am I having children and it, being married and being involved in the whole process? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think that you just... In some ways, you have to approach it from a stoic standpoint that in this, I, I guess this kind of goes for what is my prescription for improving it? And then I'll, I'll address the first part of the question. But I think sure. you have to approach it from a stoic standpoint and say, look, here is what I can control and this is what I cannot control. Um, so what I can control is what I do, what actions I take in trying to affect culture and affect uh, change in the world. Um, what I can't control is worrying about the news or worrying about how people are thinking or how people think about certain issues. So I think that the best way to improve it from an individual standpoint is do good in the world, um, get to know your neighbors, be a positive influence, be constructive, build wealth, support your family, uh, take care of your children, love, um, so I mean those those are things you can do drop little mind bombs in your in your friends and family and and try and beg questions and make them think about things and um you know you can you can lead a horse to water perhaps but you can't make them drink so at least in a hyper individualist sense I think that's the way forward is you know making sure your family's ready for any kind of calamity if things were to go downhill uh but just moreover be a good person do good work in your community, be involved, um, and try and shape people's mind and culture that way. Okay, um, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, on another hand, I guess diagnosing the, the problems in the, in the world is, is a harder task. Um, I think that social media is, is like a mind virus. And I say that while participating in it, um, which is a little bit hypocritical, but <laughs> I do think that 
uh, on the one hand, it's a good thing because our communication and I mean, my ability to have a conversation with you right now, Luke, is is fascinating and it's wonderful. Um, but the way that I think in general, Twitter and Facebook and all these social media companies, they're changing the way that discourse happens and the human thought process happens in ways that I don't always think are healthy. And there's a lot of things that people, even I think the co-creators of Facebook have come out and said that what they have done is they have hacked human psychology and they have created feedback loops in which dopamine hits. Um, your mind will release dopamine hits for getting likes or shares or getting approval, quote unquote, approval from people in society too. So um, that's one thing that I'm globbing onto because I think that it's a, it, while we are getting access to new information and in a lot of ways, it's a lot harder for the government to convince everyone that their narrative is the proper narrative. Mm -hmm. um, it is affecting the way that we interact with each other in negative ways. I suppose I can agree with that as well. I, you know, I use social media all the time. And of course, that's a big reason that the audience for culture of peace is as big as it is. Um, certainly Facebook has been the center of that. And to some extent, me, we Twitter and other things, but there's some big downsides. And especially when the say data of Facebook is managed as poorly as it is, that doesn't exactly help the case for social media. But, okay, cool. So thank you very much for that take on things. I think I, again, I think we have a lot in common uh, as far as how we're seeing these things. It's very fascinating. Now, how can people keep up with your work, support what you're doing? Uh, you know, drop all the links you have for us. Yeah, well, uh, you can go on over to libertyweekly.net. Um, there should be, I think on the sidebar, there's links to where you can find me on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play. I'm on all the platforms, so if you search me anywhere, I will probably show up. Um, so you can do that. Uh, one of the best ways that people can support my work and get access to extras and bonus content is at patreon.com forward slash Liberty Weekly. Uh, Patreon is not <laughs> my favorite place, but uh, at least for right now, until a better alternative, I'm waiting for Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin to come out with their service. Yeah, me too. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that's one thing. But but yeah, just to touch back a little bit. Um, I, I guess I don't see social media as being the one smoking gun, but there's a lot of creeping statism in terms of the technocracy and um, the Internet of Things. And I, I, th I do think I, I'm a little pessimistic because I see those things creeping in, too. And and the state replacing the family unit, I think, is a big problem as well. But I could go off on that for more hours. <laughs> right. But, That's a whole nother show. And maybe we'll yeah. do that. Yeah, I, I'd be. I, I would enjoy that. Well, hey, thanks so much for this brief overture into some of these things. And um, Patrick, I really enjoy what you're up to these days. I love the Liberty Weekly show, if I didn't say that at the beginning. So um, thrilled to do this again. Thanks, everybody. And um, let's let's do it again. Like we say, we'll have another episode. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for episode 29. 
Thanks again for your patience, as this one is way, way, way overdue, like I said before the show. So be sure to stop by over at libertyweekly.net, check out Patrick's program. It's really a great show. And, of course, the show notes for today's episode is luketatum.com slash 29. And I already have the next episode recorded as well, so I will get that one out to you shortly. And then we'll be back on a regular release schedule, and I hope we'll never have any issues with delays ever again. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time.